Interesting. Anyway, so to our final guest, this is from his profile on the British Council website. A very literary man. A very funny, very literary man. More specifically, he's a very funny, very literary northern Jewish man. He's here tonight to read from his latest novel for the very first time. You're very lucky. Please welcome the Booker Prize winning Howard Jacobson. to do this leg thing or to just stand up. I'll do the leg thing. This is it. No one's seen this before. It's not out for a couple of months. So this is... But that also means I've not read from it before. I've not, I've not been grilled on it before. This will be the first time. And I've not read from it before. So I don't have a, a well-oiled act around this book. I'm still at that stage of not knowing what the book is about. So I'm going to read a bit. I'll read from the beginning and then interrupt the beginning and read a bit more just to give you a flavour. Essentially, it's the story of a, ma of a writer. I've never written about a writer before, but for various reasons we could get into, I decided to this time. Um, uh, I write about a writer absurdly. I don't feel you can write about a writer solemnly. Um, and he's in love with his mother-in-law. He would like to have an affair with his mother-in-law, A, because he finds his mother-in-law desirable, but B, because he thinks it would be good for him as a writer, because <laughs> then he would... <laughs> so you get it. When the police apprehended me, I was still carrying the book I'd stolen from the Oxfam bookshop in Chipping Norton a pretty Cotswold town where I'd been addressing a reading group. I'd received a hostile reception from the dozen or so of the members who I realized too late had invited me only in order to be insulting. Why do you hate women so much? One of them had wanted to know. Could you give me an example of my hatred of women? I inquired politely. She certainly could. She had hundreds of passages marked with small, sticky, phosphorescent arrows, all pointing accusingly at the pronoun he. <laughs> What's wrong with he stroke she, she challenged me, making the sign of the oblique with her finger only inches from my face, wounding me with punctuation. Well, he is neuter, I told her, stepping back. It signifies no preference for either gender. Neither does they. No, but they is plural. So why are you against plurality? <laughs> and children, another had wanted to know. Why do you detest children? I explained that I didn't write about children. Precisely was her jubilant required. <laughs> the only character I identified with you... It, the only character I identified with in your book, a third reader told me, was the one who died. <laughs> only she didn't say book. Almost no one any longer said book to rhyme with took or look or even fuck, as in fuck you, you bastard, <laughs> which was the way it was pronounced in flat-voweled, lawless Lancashire, just a few miles to the north of the sedate, sleepy peat bogs of Cheshire where I grew up. Burke was how she said it. The only character I identified with you in your Burke. <laughs> As though a double O was a hyperbole too far for her. 
I'm gratified, I said, that you found her death moving. She was quivering with that rage you encounter only among readers. <laughs> was it because reading as a civilised activity was over that the last people doing it were reduced to such fury with every page they turned? Was this the final paroxysm before expiry? Moved, I feared she might strike me with my burk. <laughs> Who said I was moved? I was envious. I identified with her because I'd been wishing I was dead from the first word. <laughs> were dead, I said, putting on my jacket. I'd been wishing I were dead. Whereupon he goes back to his hotel, um, gets a little bit drunk. One of the reasons he's accepted the opportunity to speak at this reading group is in Chipping Norton, his mother-in-law, who he wishes to have an affair with, lives. But it turned out that on the very weekend he'd agreed to go there, she'd gone to see his wife back in London. So, <laughs> on his own in a hotel, he gets up the following morning, goes to, uh, goes to the local Oxfam and steals a book. The book he steals being his own book. <laughs> police are sent for, Oxfam send for police, and police um, question him on the streets of Chipping Norton. He rather enjoys this because being questioned about a book you've just stolen... On the t with, with, with tourists looking on, eating ice creams and, and pies, uh, while he's holding his book, feels more like a literary conversation than the one he's just had with them. <laughs> Towards the end, one of the policemen opens the book. The book, by the way, is called Who Gives a Monkeys? <laughs> one of the policemen opens the book, uh, and he opens it at the dedication page, which is to the fairest of the fair, my beloved wife and mother-in-law. <laughs> That's coming at a bit, coming a bit rich, isn't it, the policeman said? Sorry, what is? Saying that you love your mother-in-law. I peered over my shoulder at my dedication. It was a few years since I'd come up with it. You forget your dedications. Given enough time, you even forget your dedicatees. <laughs> no, I said, it's my wife who's the beloved, to my beloved wife and to her mother-in-law. The adjective applies only to the first of them. Shouldn't you put a comma before the, the and and in that case? <laughs> he jabbed the page with his finger, showing me where he thought the comma ought to have gone. <laughs> Listen, I said, as you appear to be an unusually discerning reader, can I make you a present of my book? You certainly cannot, he told me. Not only would I be guilty of taking a bribe if I accepted it, I'd also be guilty of receiving stolen property. In the circumstances, I considered myself lucky to have got off with a caution. Those were no small transgressions, stealing a book, leaving out a comma, and scheming to misappropriate my wife's mother. <laughs> Vanessa, not then my wife, strode into the shop I was managing one lightless Tuesday afternoon in February when my assistants had gone home. Clip-clop up the cold stone steps of the converted Georgian townhouse that was Wilhelmina's boutique. And wondered if I had seen her mother. I asked her to describe her mother. Tall, tall. She made a sort of pergola of her arms. Slender. She described what looked like two downpipes on a building. Yet high-breasted. She looked down at her own chest as though surprised by what she saw. Vivacious, vivacious, she shook an imaginary orchard. Red hair like mine. 
I scratched my head. I don't think I've seen her, I said. Could you be more specific about her appearance? <laughs> Whereupon, talk of the devil, she arrived. Clip-clop up the stone steps, as tall as a pergola, as slender as a downpipe, yet high-breasted, as vivacious as an apple orchard in a tornado. <laughs> and red hair, which just happened to be my weakness. Red hair, styled in a near-psychedelic frizz, almost comically, as though she knew, as though they both knew, that with beauty like this, you could take all the liberties with your appearance you liked. Two burning bushes, two queens of the music hall, red-lipped to match their hair. A word about the shop I was managing. Wilhelmina's was the most sophisticated women's boutique in Wimslow, a whisperingly affluent town, mingling comatose blue bloods and the newly and tastelessly wealthy, just a few miles to the east of Cheshire. My mother had started the business and had entrusted it to me in what she grandly called her retirement, while my younger and more suitable brother was being trained at a local business college with a view to his taking it over permanently. I was the dreamer of the family. I did words. I read books, which meant I couldn't be trusted with business. <laughs> books distracted me. They were an illness, an impediment to a healthy life. I could have applied for a disability badge for my car, permission to park anywhere in Cheshire, so incapacitated by books and words was I. <laughs> Indeed, I was doing words, ignoring customers and reading Henry Miller, who at the time was my favourite writer, when Vanessa, followed by her mother, clipped-clopped up the stairs. It was as though characters from Sexus and Nexus had suddenly come alive, like the toys in the Nutcracker Suite on the shop floor of Wilhelmina's. You could say I saw more of the mother first off than I saw of the daughter, given that she appeared twice, first in words, ah, oh, words, and then in person. And words affect me more than persons do. But Vanessa had made her own impression too, tall, slender, vivacious, yes, flamboyant even, but angry about something as well, not improbably about having such an attractive mother. <laughs> And not just incidentally angry, more as though her frame had been overstrung, taut, vibrating, in a way that reminded me of a description of a schooner's rigging I had read by Joseph Conrad, the schooner being his first command. One of those descriptions that make you want to be a writer. The ship's quivering, I took it, was in reality the young commander's own. So maybe that was true of Vanessa and me too. The sight of her set me trembling. My first command, correction, her first command. But I haven't imposed any anger of my own on her. It was all hers, the condition of her nature, as though she had to rage the way a sunflower had to turn its head. Beside, I had nothing at that particular moment to be angry about. I was in sole possession of a shop illuminated. Someone might as well have lit flares by the blazing red presence of Vanessa and her mother. To this day, I can remember everything Vanessa was wearing. The high black patent shoes, minimal so that you got to see her arches and her instep. The paper-fine leather coat belted so tight that it did what I thought only a pencil skirt could do, which was to make a still point of tension of her behind, a tremulousness, as though some law of gravity or protuberance were being defied. The V of its fur collar like the vagina of a giantess. <laughs> and pushed back, pushed back a little from her red hair, a Givago hat, though Anna Karenina was who I saw, 
the air from our, hand, from our fan heater winnowing its fine hairs as though a Russian bear had stepped in out of the wind. As for Poppy, her mother, well, she was attired identically. They presented themselves to the world as sisters, except that where the hem of Vanessa's coat was, if anything, a fraction too long. I speak as, I speak as a fashion expert. <laughs> Poppy's was decidedly more than a fraction too short. But then she'd lived for a while in America, and American women were then, as they are now, beyond help when it comes to hemlines. <laughs> How old would she have been when she first walked into Wilhelmina's, 45 or 6, making her, when the police apprehended me in Chipping Norton, knowing in their bones that I was on a pervert's errand, no less than on a thief's, in her middle 60s. In her middle 60s now, a wonderful age for a woman who has kept an eye on herself. And I'm going to stop there. disrobing in the manner of Wilhelmina's boutique. Um, I, I should like to say I did fold the page over with it. I learned a lot about vaginas reading this book. I, I, did, I learned, I did, I learned, I learned a lot about a lot of things reading this book. I am, by the way, no expert. <laughs> <laughs> Reminds me of a chubby brown joke, but I don't think I'll tell it. Oh no, it's not the place for that. Um, so, just, gonna, this, this is the point where I check with my wife, I'm no, his, his, who his, comes along with me everywhere, and I check to see whether I should tell it or not. And she's just gone like that. Yeah. So. <laughs> Are you absolutely sure? I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna ask you what is your is your mother here? No. <laughs> oh, she's 99. Very good looking. Yeah. <laughs> I don't need to say very much, really. Do I? <laughs> Still got this chubby brown joke. <laughs> so I want So you kind of fed me the line. I'm going to ask you what you know. Why write the book about the writer now? Why write the book about the writer guy, now? Guy, you, you, you want to you, in this book? You're kind of examining the state of writing through Guy. Yes. Guy and um, and and Guy's feeling is that I mean his. It, is it his agent that kills himself or his publisher? His publisher shoots himself in the mouth. Yes. And, and it, and his they have a conversation about blogs and blogging and things. And they've both got the wrong words. They're both men out of their time. And finally, the publisher just goes home and shoots himself. <laughs> it's, very, it's very interesting that you would find it amusing that a publisher is shot himself. This is somebody's husband, this is somebody's father. But the world we're in here is a world where publishers are doing this. Uh, you, when you knock on the door of your agent or your publisher, you're, you're terrified if there's no answer and you look to see if there's, if there's blood trickling from the inside. Because this is a world where it's all over. The, the business is all over. Shops are, clo shops are closing, of course. But is, no it, one's... is it? Oh, come on. If it, if it was, you wouldn't be writing the book, would you? Well, this you is what, this, that's the whole point. This is, well, this is one of the jokes. Yeah, yeah. What, what he thinks is not what I think. Yeah. But there's a very... This, I mean... The book has a very interesting evil. The novel has a very interesting evolution in its pessim, in its cheerful pessimism. In that I began it when I, when my novel that won the Man Booker two years ago, the Finkler question. I ran it when I'd, I started to write this one when I'd just finished writing uh, the Finkler question, and I had a feeling that the Finkler question was going to do absolutely nothing. 
all the signs were bad. My American publisher didn't like it. My existing English publisher was not that keen on it, so I changed publishers and they were fine about it, but the signs were not good. Um, and I thought, it's over. I truly thought it's over. I'm not going to be able to make a decent living anymore. Uh, I'm not going to go bitter about it. I've always been bitter. I've been bitter all my life. <laughs> so I thought I'm not going to go any more bitter than I was. And I would turn the bitter bitterness into play. I thought what I will do is I'll do what I've never done before. Write about a writer. I don't write about writers. Make him absurd. Make him a writer longing to have success, but writing the kind of books that can't possibly succeed. Wanting to write books that shock people, but in fact is, you know, a cow. his idea of, the, of a terrible, terrible thing is to fall in love with your mother. But every, every other man in this room is probably in love with his mother-in-law. <laughs> it's, it's, it's common or garden. So make it... <laughs> Not so much. Maybe father-in-law over there, but no. Yeah, 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 yeah that can happen too. Um, <laughs> And I was proceeding very, very well uh, and enjoying. I was running down to my wife and said, I've never enjoyed writing a novel more than this. It's as bitter as hell. It's... And I thought, I'm going to write the best, the funniest novel about literary failure that's ever, ever been written. <laughs> and then a girl win the fucking Man Booker Prize. <laughs> <laughs> so you... So, you, you know, you, you use your brains and you think this is a very nice thing that's happened and you, and you drink your success to the dregs because it is... I mean, it is astonishing when you... What happens when you win this prize? You have no idea. What because your, well, your book is everywhere in the world. Everywhere in the world. The, the Finkler, Finkler question, a novel about a bunch of Jewish men in North London, was number one in Pakistan. <laughs> it was. I have a theory, and no one has yet disproved it, <laughs> that when the Americans came to get Osama bin Laden, <laughs> he was reading the Finkler question. <laughs> because everybody said, everybody said he was, wasn't taking the usual precautions. <laughs> and the Americans heard, heard laughter. He was reading the Finkler question, roaring with laughter. They came in and they got him. <laughs> So I'm able to feel that I made his last moments. He didn't deserve to have a, to have a last good hour, but at least I gave him that good hour. But anyway, then, when I, then about three months after you won the book, you calm down and you think, well, the bookshops are still closing. People, everybody you know is still writing a novel because the, the, the thing about this world of literary failure that I'm writing about here is everybody is writing a novel. Everybody. Including Guy's wife. Yeah. Oh yes, and, he's and the, and the Vanessa. Guy, yeah. Oh yes, yes. But nobody's but nobody's reading them. That's the sign when things are going wrong. When everybody's. So I thought all these things are as true as they were before. I will return to this novel, to this bitter novel about literary failure, but in very high spirits, <laughs> having just escaped it myself by a kind of fluke, really. <laughs> And it so is hilarious. It I have to say, it is, it is hilarious. Um, I, I, I read most of it on a plane and was snorting in a very unattractive way um, for a large part of the time. Um, now, you, say, you said in a piece, I think, for The Guardian, you said, we've created a false division between laughter and thought, between comedy and seriousness, between the exhilaration that the great novels offer when they're at their funniest and whatever it else is we now think we want from literature. So, and then you say, from, for some reason, we're running scared of, of funny books. So what, what is it you think that we're, run, we're running scared of? Something, the no, when the novel is first born, 
I'm not going to give it, you know, we don't have to go all the way back. We're not, we won't talk about Rabelais, but that's the novel is born with Rabelais and Cervantes, great, scabrous, disgusting, murderous black comedies, most of them, black satires. And that's the novel form. The novel then gets, the novel then becomes over-religious and solemn. And the contemporary novel, to my mind, has forgotten what a wild, what a wild thing, it, thing it was and what the exhilaration was that comes from black-heartedness, you know, sheer bastardy and black-heartedness, the comedy that comes from that, and the, the liberating freedom that comes, not just from laughing, you don't have to laugh, but just from feeling the robustness of language that the great comic writers give you. And the reason for that is we've decided that novels have got to mind their manners. You can't, hence my joke at the beginning of the novel about them, about them you know, the women saying, you know, he's, he doesn't write about children. A novel doesn't have to write about children or like them. A novel doesn't have to be nice about women. A novel doesn't have to be nice about men. A novel doesn't have to be nice about Jews. I'm reading at the moment a long, long journey to the end of the night by Ferdinand Céline, one of the greatest novels I've ever read in my life. The man was a pig. He was an anti-Semitic, Nazi, fascist sympathizer. He was a pig. But he is a wonderful, wonderful writer. And you have to separate desirable attitudes from the vitality of art. We're always saying art can be as offensive as it likes. And then the minute a comedian or a writer is offensive, we go, oh, no, 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 we can't have that. The truth is that the offensiveness of, that we accept in comedy is the offensiveness that we should also accept in literature. And it's a liberation from our mimsy, puling, frightened selves that think there is such a thing as right attitudes. There are no right attitudes in art. Okay. <laughs> Clicking like on that manifesto there. Um, Sylvia, and then other questions, and then a question. Like, sure, go. Hello, I have too many questions, perhaps pick one. Um, your character in this book is a writer, but the one theme about all your characters, the main protagonists in all your books, is they all display such an eruditeness. They all display such literary nurse. Yeah, I didn't know they did, but if they do, if you tell me that they do, <laughs> then I believe they do. They read books. They are, yes. I do, where, are you, I, yes. where are you going? And, well, I don't feel that he—I don't feel that he does. I just have read a lot of books in my life, and it's just natural for me to have them in my head. And I feel I owe it to my to my readers or my readers to be to assume that they are the same. And so they are, you know, and they are. look at them. Look, yes, look at look at them all. We have a we had a we have a wide vocabulary. We are bold in our emotional life, and we have probably read a lot of books. And why pretend otherwise? Okay, lady at the back there. Sorry, I don't know your name. Go ahead. Uh, I read an indication that the environmental indigenous interests, the sacred legalities, the grotesque, when you counted that, let's say you considered yourself as a Jewish Jane Austen. It's the kind of it's the great line of you being the English Philip Roth and you having said I'm the Jewish Jane Austen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the irony of this is it was in a gathering a gathering not unlike this at Hay on Y. The only difference is that a gathering like this on Hay on Y means that while you are all under 30, they are all over 80. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't mean to be rude to Hay on Y. It's just the way, just who comes to me, that's all. 
all the young ones go to somebody else. And this was said, you know, uh, how do you feel about being called the English Philip Roth? And uh, Philip, I think Philip Roth is a fantastic writer, um, fantastic writer. And being compared to him is a huge compliment. But these things weigh on you. This, and I was just sick of it, so I just came up there and then with what seemed to me to be a good joke. No, I think of myself more as the Jewish Jane Austen. <laughs> but now I'm stuck with that. <laughs> so I think of myself as the... Give me something. I married him. Oi. <laughs> or oi married him. Um, so um, I wanted... That could be racist, but... It's not, it's not. And anyway, I don't mind giving everything I've just said. <laughs> <laughs> I love that he's like, I don't mind you being racist, Randy, so much. Oh, anyway. Um, so, <laughs> I want to, so, so Jeffrey in the book has his late life, not conversion, or does he have a conversion? He is a kind of bastardized conversion. He's the brother of the main character. Um, and, and Guy goes back to see his parents. Um, and Jeffrey, the brother, has kind of embraced a faith that he didn't have in his life. And it's, it's ludicrous. So tell us, tell us about that moment. Yes, well, this wasn't going to be a Jewish book at all. I kind of, you know, I, I've been trying not to write Jewish books from the moment I started to write. <laughs> I am not a Jewish writer, which is the other reason I wish I hadn't called myself the Jewish Jane Austen. <laughs> I am an English writer who happened to have grown up in a Jewish uh, community and therefore know a lot about them and... Um, and endlessly trying not to write about Jews. And in this one, I thought, he's not, he's not, I'm not going to call him a Jew, or an, he's not going to be a Jew or anything. Then I discovered I'd called him Guy Abelman. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, OK, well, he seems to, it seems to have crept in again. <laughs> but he's a Jew that's not interested in being Jewish. He's absolutely not interested in being Jewish. And neither is his family. And then suddenly, at the end, his, his, his brother, who is the one who manages Wilhelmina, Wilhelmina's now, and who is living in Manchester in what he thinks is the high life. In Manchester, they, the Manchester idea of having a good night out is you pour vodka through your eye. <laughs> and when my hero goes back to Manchester, because, of course, he leaves Manchester and meets his brother, and his brother asks him to pour a vodka down his eye, and uh, he thinks... <laughs> this is not my idea. But then it turns out that his brother's been pouring so many vodkas down his eye, he's got a brain tumour. I don't know whether medically this follows, but I don't see... I'm not that kind of writer. I'm not a George, I'm not a George Eliot that will study the effects of pouring vodka. But if it doesn't give you a brain tumour, it bloody well should. It probably will, yeah. So, the, but it, and it turns out that under the pressure of this brain tumour, the, the family is... Uh, the brother turns, suddenly turns religious, and when, he, and when my hero goes up to see him, he's got long ringlets and he's got fringes hanging down and things, and it's just a kind of... I don't know why I did it, really. It was just a... <laughs> but then it has some point, but I won't spoil the story by telling what. No, don't but tell. It's, but really, it's not, it's not, a, not Jewish. Um, I'll, ta I'll take one more question. I thought I saw a hand over here. Laura. Actually, I like a question for Hannah's wife. <laughs> I want to know, what do you think the relationship is between your mother... <laughs> 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 well, I, I was like, I was thinking when I said before she's 99. <laughs> 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 well, OK, in that, that case, I'm going to leave it there. I want to say a huge, a huge thank you to all our guests tonight, to Gats, to Scott and John, to Hannah Rothschild, and to Harrow Jacobson. And to all of you, I'll be back on September the 12th. Thank you very much. <laughs>